0: Guardian Unlimited. Hi, I'm Sarah Crown. and I've just got the train up from King's Cross to Edinburgh Waverley Station and got off the train and I've just met Ian Rankin who's about to guide us around the city.
1: Hello, hello. You've just arrived at Waverley Station, and the reason I wanted to meet you here specifically was that Waverley is named after the first novel by Sir Walter Scott. Yeah. And we've come up onto Waverley Bridge. We have exited the station, and looking around us, we look our eyes drawn immediately towards this huge missile, which is the uh, which is a, a huge stone monolith celebrating the life of Sir Walter Scott. It's called the Scott Monument. And so the first thing you do is you arrive at Edinburgh is arrive at a station named after a novel and see a, the biggest monument of its kind in the world, I think, dedicated to a, an author. So straight away you get an idea that Edinburgh is a city of words.
0: And so why is it, what is it, do you think, about the city that prompts so many people, including you obviously, to write about it?
1: Well, I mean, I suppose the cliché, but it's a cliché because it happens to be true, is that it's a, it's a hidden city. Mm. There's an extraordinary amount of public show. You know, the visitor who comes to Edinburgh with a short time will see only the public face, but that's like the tip of the iceberg. And Edinburgh is very good at hiding itself away. And what I want to show you today are some of the little bits of secret Edinburgh that people might not see when they come here.
0: Brilliant. Well, let's let's head off then.
1: So we're walking up Waverley Bridge now to Princess Street, which is the main shopping street in the centre of Edinburgh. And again, you can see the the two Edinburgh's to me, to my mind. You've got sort of modern commercialism, Princess Street. One side of it is all the usual shops that you could find in any town or city in the UK. But the other side are these wonderful gardens, which used to be a loch, a lake, which was drained because it was a bit smelly and people in this side of the street didn't like it. (laughs) And behind that, you've got the old town, the original town with the castle which you can see from almost any part of Edinburgh. Which is why it's such a nice, you know, Stevenson found it such a a Jekyll and Hyde city to him, was the fact that you had the new, new the rational new town which was laid out in a kind of very rational way, designed, if you look at it on a map, it's a grid with circles at either end. Um, And the old town is all higgledy-piggledy. So we're going to get a little bit of both today. Uh And the thing about Edinburgh is, and this would appeal to a Scotsman of course, an awful lot of the good stuff here is free. That doesn't include the pint you're just about to buy me though.
0: Okay, so we've come off the main thoroughfare of Princes Street now and we've come into a pub, a beautiful pub, called the Café Royal.
1: The thing I like about this place, the Café Royal, although I I do use it in my books quite a lot, because if Rebus is on Princes Street, he won't drink there because it's just awful. So he'll he'll tiptoe up a little side alley and he'll find himself here within 30 seconds of leaving Princess Street. So again, it's part of that secret Edinburgh that only the locals know about. If you were a tourist visiting Edinburgh, you would go up and down Princess Street. You would never think to go down one of the little alleyways and find yourself in this absolutely gorgeous, pristine pub. But Anyway, the Café Royal is the bar I came into to celebrate publication of my very first novel, The Flood, which was published in 1986, February 86. And after we had a little bit of a launch, a few of my friends brought me in here, and we had a very drunken night with us all being kicked out. <laughs> so I, I come in here in Mufti now, hoping that they don't remember me from all those years ago. Sure they <laughs> wouldn't. Back out again. Look at the rainbow! Rainbow right over Calton Hill. It's bucketing with rain over our heads. It's blue skies above. Where's the rain coming from? Always, there's this irony, people say you don't come to Edinburgh for the weather. In fact, there's no escaping it. You you come to Edinburgh and you get four seasons in a day.
0: Oh, and you can see as we come up round the corner now, getting a lot closer to Arthur's seat and the hills. And Lovely to be able to be in the middle of the city and see out and see the hills as you can in Edinburgh.
1: What you seem to have in Edinburgh is you have the countryside in the middle of the city because Arthur's seat in Holyrood Park, which is, you know, belongs to the Palace of Holyrood House, which belongs to the Queen, huge, huge, hundreds of acres of wilderness, basically. We're going to turn left and climb up these steps and we're going to keep climbing all the way to the top of Carlton Hill. So you can be wandering around Holyrood Park and you wouldn't know you were still in the middle of a city, but you are.
0: Okay, we've now made it up to the top of the hill. Um, and there's a collection of very strange buildings up here that I'd love to know a bit more about.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, we're right. We're at the top of Carlton Hill now, which is at the east end of Princess Street. It's a leisurely 10 minute walk from um, Waverley Station. Um, and on top of Calton Hill, we've a range of things. We've got an observatory, which is that big yeah. sort of building, dome building there, plus the buildings behind it, which are in the kind of Greek temple shape. Then there's the unfinished Scottish Monument, which is one side of the Parthenon. There was a a rich Scotsman who decided that since I, um, Edinburgh was the Athens of the North, we should build our own Parthenon. But they got as far as building one side of it, and he died, and the money ran out. So we've basically got a one-sided Parthenon. I quite like it. I mean, it's an intriguing thing. It's almost better to be unfinished. There's also a thing, I think it's called the Outlook Tower, the Nelson Tower, the Nelson's Column, which is, um, it's a bit like a telescope at the very top of it is a white ball which we can't see at the moment because it has dropped it drops at one o'clock when the one o'clock gun sounds from the ramparts at Edinburgh Castle to tell the locals that it's 1 p.m. the ball at the outreach tower drops so that ships out at sea can who've got their eye on it can have a time check what can we see now we've sort of walked along a little path at the top of Calton Hill and we're looking straight over to Arthur Seat and Salisbury Crags. Salisbury Crags, probably more famous these days because Irvin Welsh in his book Spotting, decided to use it as a, a rhyming slang for skag or heroin. Fantastic geological thing, basically part of an extinct volcano and in the rupture of the earth caused by the plates pushing up. Yeah. At the bottom of which sits the new Scottish Parliament building, which from here you can't make out too well. It's the new buildings. It's not the funny-shaped one which looks a bit like the dome in London. That is um, our dynamic earth, which is like a geological-themed park affair. Palace of Holyrood House is there where the Queen stays when she's in Edinburgh. And between the two is the Scottish Parliament, which comprises some old buildings and some new.
0: And doesn't one of your books begin there with the building of...
1: um, I've got a book called Set in Darkness which begins in, there's an old building called Queensbury House which is part of the Scottish Parliament now and it begins with a, a body found there when they're doing it up in preparation for the Scottish Parliament and the reason for that is that I found out that in 1707 just as the Act of Union was being signed between Scotland and England, the person responsible from the Scots end was the Duke of Queensbury. He went up to St Giles Cathedral to give thanks leaving his, some mad relative, in Queensbury House who decided he was a bit peckish, so he killed one of the servants and roasted him on a spit and ate him. And he came back from this thanksgiving service to find this act of cannibalism taking place. The good people of Edinburgh took this as a bad omen for the um, union between the two countries. Understandably. Understandably so, perhaps. But I just thought it was such a bizarre story. I went to look at Queensbury House when they were um, doing an archaeological survey of it before they built the new bits, and was there on the very day when the wall was stripped back and the fireplace revealed where this act of cannibalism had taken place. So it was such a nice conjunction, as far as a fiction writer is concerned, that it was as if the story wanted to be told. So we've come down from Calton Hill, we've walked up what are called North Bridge and South Bridge, which are the bridges that connect Old Town to the new. We're now in the Old Town, this is Chambers Street and we're outside the Royal Scottish Museum attached to this is a new museum called the Museum of Scotland and it's a nice example of how new architecture can work with old architecture but let's go and get a cup of coffee it's freezing out here so Sarah we've left our delicious cafe Cafe Delos in the old museum and we've just walked through this doorway and we're in the new museum now which is all about information technology and really high tech stuff but can you see what's over there on the left?
0: (laughs) Yes, um, I seem to be looking at a revolving sheep
1: it is. It's a sheep behind glass revolving. That's because it's Dolly the sheep. Because it was a research establishment just outside Edinburgh where she was uh, cloned. Her eyes do follow you around the room. It's very strange. The reason I brought you into the new museum is because I want to show you where, where I get my ideas from. Okay. So we've got to take a lift up to the fourth floor. So we're in the lift and we're going up to the fourth floor. And as we exit the lift, we're, the first thing we see is a coffin. But it's not really a coffin, it's called a mort-safe. Right. And a mort-safe is a huge metal coffin shape that was placed over the coffin to stop the gravediggers getting at it. The coffin would be hidden inside that of a dead person when they were buried for the first few months until the body was past the state of being useful right. to the anatomists. So your Birkin hair type people couldn't get the real coffin because it was hidden inside a mort-safe. Keep walking. This section is all about death and our attitudes to death. And as you can see, it's tucked away at the very back of the museum, where almost nobody ever comes. Which is why I was so thrilled to come up here and find these tiny little coffins with little dolls inside.
0: They're tiny little figures and really, really disturbing looking.
1: What happened was that I came into the museum one day and a curator recognised me and he said, Mr Rankin, can I show you something? And he brought me up here to the fourth floor and showed me these tiny coffins, 17 of which were found hidden in a a small cave on Arthur's seat in the 1830s by some kids who were playing there, well, about six inches long, but the, the little wooden dolls inside, which are made from something like clothes pegs or something, are, are dressed. There are various theories as to what they might be doing, but one of the most persuasive theories is that because of the metalwork on them, it's quite intricate and it resembles shoe buckles, and they think it could be someone who made shoes that would that would have made those. And Burke, of Burke and Hare fame, happened to have a friend who was a shoemaker, there were 17 victims of Arkin here. There were 17 coffins. And so one of the theories is that these were left as a memorial. But there's plenty of other theories that sailors would leave them as good luck charms before they went away to sea or that there is a witchcraft connection.
0: Very creepy indeed.
1: This is a scene where a curator at the museum has brought rebus up here because small coffins have been found in contemporary times. They passed funeral weeds and photos of dead babies and stopped at the furthest glass case. Here we are, Birchall said, the Arthur seat coffins Rebus looked. There were eight coffins in all. They were five or six inches long, well made, with nails studded into their lids. Inside the coffins were little wooden dolls, some wearing clothes. Rebus stared at a green and white check. Hibs fan, he said. Sarah, we've come back downstairs into the old museum, and we've come to the far end, where the Millennium Clock is based, which is this extraordinary structure. It's, a, it's all clockwork, it's all mechanical clockwork construction, which is a clock representing the horror of the 20th century. So kids love it because everything moves, but when you look closer, you see Stalin, you see Hitler, you see poverty and death and torture. All going on, people's heads being sawn off. You start at the bottom with a, a monkey turning a wheel and you go right to the top. I've described it several times in my books because Rebus comes here and he sees it as, a, as being a clock full of pain. At the end of the great hall, a huge clock had been erected, its complex mechanism comprising models of skeletons and gargoyles. A naked carving of a woman seemed to be wrapped in barbed wire. Rebus got the feeling there might be other scenes of torture just beyond his vision. Our millennium clock, Jean Burchell explained. She checked her watch. Ten minutes before it strikes again. Interest in design, Rebus said. A clock full of suffering. She looked at him not everyone notices straight away. So we've left um, Chambers Street and we've walked back up George IV Fourth Bridge to the High Street, Royal Mile as it's colloquially known, which is really the heart of well, it's the heart of Midlothian, ironically. There is a little, uh, some stones uh, just outside St Giles Cathedral where we're standing now in the shape of a heart, and that's supposed to be the, the centre of Midlothian. Yeah. And the locals disgustingly spit in the middle of it for luck. And they always wait until a, a nice little tourist is walking past, getting a photograph, and they, they just make sure they get a nice big spit into the middle of the stone. But this is this kind of centre of enlightenment, Edinburgh. Just across the road, outside the High Court, is a huge statue of David Hume, the philosopher. Next to that is Deacon Brodie's pub, Deacon Brodie, gentleman by day, housebreaker by night, model for Jekyll and Hyde. And the National Library of Scotland is just round the corner and it was said at one point during the Enlightenment that if you stood at this very spot, within a couple of minutes you could have shaken the hands of 30 men of genius.
0: It's dark now, it's, it's sort of wet and cold and a little bit creepy and we're now standing in Fleshmarket Close, which is the title of one of your books
1: Ian? Well it's one of these these odd coincidences where I knew I wanted to write about a book about immigration policy, asylum seekers, Scottish identity and then one day I was walking past Flesh Market Close and thought that's the theme of the book, it's human beings reduced to a commercial market and so Flesh Market, I thought that's the title of the book so I must find a way for my detective to get here and so I have these skeletons found, there's a door almost opposite us and that's the, the cellar where the bodies are actually found. And I love the fact that the Royal Mile is flanked by these closes, these tiny little narrow alleyways, any one of which, there are dozens and dozens of them, any one of which, if you walk down it, you will find something interesting. Yeah. They're not that creepy. Come on. Well, you're just being a coward.
0: Yes, it's all suggestion, I think. Power of suggestion.
1: And we're heading downhill back down towards Waverley Station, where you're going to get your train home. Guardian Unlimited.